Matthew chapter 6, if you'd turn there, please. Um, while you're turning, um, I got a suggestion from John Mitchell, our facilities director, on the next Minter Minute. And he said, since so many of us are going through the Bible in a year, through this Bible project, and you'll notice if you're going through it, when you get to the Psalms, it'll say, take a deep breath. <laughs> it talks about praying through the Psalms, so on. What does it mean to pray through a psalm? Um, <clears throat> when you look at the psalms, they are, uh, this is the prayer book uh, of the Jewish people in the Old Testament times, and, and the song book. People would sing the psalms and they'd pray the psalms. Uh, this morning, if you happen to be where we're supposed to be in the reading, you might be a little bit behind, a little bit ahead, but Psalm 19 talks about the heavens declare the glory of God and the ferment shows his handiwork and then all of a sudden it slides into from natural revelation to uh, God's uh, um, specific revelation, his word. And it talks about the word is more valuable than gold and precious silver and so on. And to pray through that is to actually take time, think particularly to look at it, maybe a particular word or something that jumps off the page at you and you say, Lord, I really believe that's true. I want that to be a part of my life. I want to invest that in my life. And the more you take that in, the more it becomes infused in your actual being as to how you think when you read through the Psalms or other portions of Scripture. That's kind of my take on that. Today, we are continuing in our series on the cost of not following Jesus. In the very first week, we looked at the cost of following Jesus and then we looked at the cost of not following Jesus. And we said the cost of following Jesus is, there's a cost, there's a price to pay. But it's nowhere as near as great as the price is for not following him. And the reason the world is in the confusion, the mess that it's in, is because the world is not following Jesus. And that can happen in our own lives, even as believers. And then last week, I wanted to make sure we understood the distinction between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And we looked at uh, briefly at, at Colossians chapter 1 in verses 12 and 13 where it says, you've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, that's Satan's kingdom, and you have been delivered into the kingdom of God's dear son, the kingdom of light. So you've got this parallel of light and darkness. So we took a look, it spent about 20 minutes on each one of those. And now, the remainder of these weeks, today we're going to look at the kingdom of God, what is it? What does it do for us? What does it mean to understand it and believe it, etc.? And then we're going to look next week at what it means to live in an upside-down kingdom, which is what we so often see in, uh, uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And then we will look at some of the parables regarding the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom, and some of those in our, in our final week. But right now we're in chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and I'd like you to look at a very familiar text, very, very familiar text. And we're going to use that to sort of dive into the subject matter of the kingdom. Now, there are people that have spent a good bit of their lives studying the kingdom. I've got a, a book. I have not read it. It's written by a theologian. It's that thick on the greatness of his kingdom. I've looked at little portions here and there. It's just a vast tome. Many have written on it. It's a complex and very deep issue and yet there's much on the surface that's very easy to understand. So here's a portion of Scripture that we know a fair amount about. Most of us are somewhat familiar with it. We're going to look at verses 25 down to the end of the chapter of Matthew chapter 6. 
Therefore, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, do not worry about your life or what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not reap or store away in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them, and you're much more valuable than they. Who of you, by worrying, can add one single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow and thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So why do you worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Lord, thank you for the time to open up your word and to read these words of Jesus himself. And I pray today that we would leave here with a greater understanding of what it means to live in your kingdom. And so open our eyes that we behold wondrous things out of your law. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We start off by... by uh, saying a couple weeks back that Christians will often use terms that after a while become cliches and not reality. And it's very easy to say, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Most Christians can quote that. They know they've heard that verse. They know something about it. They've heard a message on it. But what does it actually mean to seek the kingdom of God? And what is the kingdom of God that we are seeking? That's the question that we have to ask. After all, if we're already in that kingdom, according to Paul in Colossians, we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son, why do we have to need to seek a kingdom that we already have, that we're already in? just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. So if I was, uh, if somebody were trying to explain something to me about computers, and you all know my computer skills, all right, if somebody were to say, Mike, if you really want to, really want to understand computers, seek ye first the hyperlinks, and the rest will be added unto you. Now, if I don't know what a hyperlink is, and I don't, if I don't know what that is, all right, how, how am I going to seek it? So it's very easy to talk about the kingdom, but do we know what the kingdom of God actually is? You can read various definitions from various scholars and so on, but bottom line, they all, they all basically say this. The kingdom of God is the universal, sovereign rule over all time and all situations in all of history. It's God's sovereign rule. Even Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the empire in the time of the Babylonians, eventually, after he went through a severe time, almost gave that definition. And he does what he pleases. He rules over all. He even rules over the kingdom of darkness by allowing it. We don't know why he allows it. We don't know how long he's going to allow it, but he allows it. But he is still sovereign over that. Remember, in, we were studying Joseph in chapter 50. We said Joseph makes a statement to his brothers. You meant it for evil, 
but God meant it for good. You meant it for the kingdom of darkness, but God meant it for the kingdom of light. God is sovereign over that kingdom of darkness. He allowed these things to happen to me, and he says the reason they happened to me is so many people would be spared. God actually used that and leveraged that evil to bring about something good. That's beyond our, the scope of our understanding, all right? But we accept the fact that that's what we're dealing with when we talk about the kingdom. The kingdom, the word kingdom also means to reign. It carries with the idea of reigning, reigning, ruling. Uh, we have different monarchies and different government types. We have places where there's a king, and every kingdom has to have a king. And the king of the kingdom of God is God himself, or Jesus. Jesus is the reigning king of the kingdom. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, all of it starts back there, before the fall of Adam and Eve, where God says to them, and you are to rule, you're to be kingdom-like, you're to rule over the fish of the sea, over the cattle of the land, over the fowls of the air, and over the earth. You're to rule. I'm the ultimate ruler, I'm the ultimate king in my kingdom, but I've got other people that are, that are co-rulers. That was, that was the idea from the very beginning. And then Adam and Eve decided, based on the temptation of Satan, they had a better understanding as to how rule ought to take place. They had a better understanding of, of what uh, good and evil meant. They had a better understanding as, as to who really understood how to rule this place. And once they fell into sin, as I said last week, the lights went out. And the kingdom, certainly to some degree, almost became dark. But God is still in charge. So what does God do? He says, well, since I've created all things, I'm going to restore all things. I'm going to bring about restoration of this kingdom. And I'm going to pick a man. And I'm going to pick a family. And his name is Abraham. And God says to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then eventually, there will be the final kingdom, as you read about in the book of Revelation, the last few chapters, about the consummation of the perfect kingdom in which the, the dark kingdom is gone forever. And he rules and reigns forever. So, having an understanding of that is, is huge. We have to grasp those things. So, Adam and Eve entering or bringing sin into the world crushed what, what was originally designed for them. So, Abraham becomes the one, and now the Messiah has eventually come and has ushered in the kingdom. Here's one of the statements that Jesus makes to Pilate in the Gospel of John. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. There is a kingdom in this world, the kingdom of darkness. That's not my kingdom. That's not my kingdom. All right? And so... He's clearly making a statement that there's the kingdom that he has brought in, and he's the ruler of that kingdom. And that is a huge statement, and it's a very defining statement, which we'll dive into more as we look at the whole subject matter of kingdom. So often, we as believers think, uh, and, and I'm guilty of saying it too much, and that is we often think about when you die, you go to heaven, or... Uh, we tell people, if, you're, if you were to die today, do you know for certain you'd go to heaven? It's, it's not a bad question. It's really not. But in reality, the Bible doesn't talk about 
when you die, you go to heaven. The Bible talks about when you die, you go to be with Jesus, and heaven comes here. The new heavens and the new earth come here. But it's not a it's not wrong terminology. It's the whole idea of entering into eternal life. Are you certain of that? But what does Jesus speak on the most? If you were to read through the Gospels, Jesus speaks far more about the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or is here. Over and over again, Jesus taught the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Even the Paul, in his uh, uh, letter to the Romans, the last statement is he's, he's in a rented house preaching the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is a, is a major subject throughout Scripture. It runs from all the way from Genesis 1 all the way on, on through. Now, here's where we run into a little bit of a problem. I just mentioned in Colossians, we're in the kingdom. Taken out of one kingdom, put in the other kingdom. And yet, we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. Hmm, I thought it was here. What do you mean, will it come? Or you read that the kingdom of God is near. Other passages indicate the kingdom of God is far away. Sometimes it says it's come. Sometimes it refers to it as the future. But the truth is, those are all aspects of the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God that is near or here right now is not the ultimate future kingdom in which all evil will be erased. The kingdom we live in now is still amongst the, the, the kingdom of evil as we saw in this video just a few moments ago. So that still is, is around. But a paradox, when statements are made like that, we, they're nuanced, you have to sort of understand the con context, but even in our own speech, a paradox are two truths that seemingly contradict one another. Look before you leap, he who hesitates is lost. We, we say things like that. We, we, we make statements like that. Uh, we make statements like... Um, Absence makes the heart grow fonder, but familiarity breeds contempt. Which one is it? <laughs> you know, do you want them to come and stay with you, or do you want them to stay away? <laughs> that, that kind of a thing. And so we have to sort of understand the context, how it's being used, and, 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 and what is actually taking place when Jesus speaks and when others speak about the kingdom. All right? Let's say that you're having your parents come and visit you for Thanksgiving. All right? This is an illustration dealing with this. And uh, your whole family's there. You can't wait to see your parents and, and, and the grandkids are there. And they land at Dulles Airport and they text you and they say, we're here. And everybody goes, they're here. No, they're not. They're at Dulles. They're not here. But they're sort of here, all right? Then they text you after they've rented a car because you're too lazy to pick them up. And they're driving... <laughs> And they're driving, and, and they say, uh, we're almost, almost here. Then they pull up in the driveway, and everybody goes, they're here. No, they're not. They're not inside the house yet. They're still in the driveway. Once they walk in, that becomes the finality of the kingdom. That's when the kingdom is completely consummated. There is nothing else, all right? So that's sort of what it means when you hear the terms, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and yet we are in the kingdom. Our problem is... And here's where the cliche comes in. And believe me, guilty as charged right here. Our problem is, we hear these terms, we believe them intellectually, but we don't really see ourselves as living in this kingdom with all of its wisdom, its power, and its glory, and what it actually means to seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Because when you read that, 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 that section, which we just read in Matthew, and it talks about why would we worry about our clothes, or why would we worry about you know, our food, doesn't God take... But he says something much greater at the very beginning. Is not life more important than food and clothing? He's saying, oh, there's much more to it than food and clothing. Far more. This is why there are people that have no food and clothing, that are living in poverty-stricken lands, that have far more victorious lives than most of us here. Because they really understand what it means to live in the kingdom. They get it. It's very real to them. It's not a cliche. And so often we make these statements. And so when we, when we look at this, why would I seek what I already have? I'm already in the kingdom. What I need to seek is the kingdom and its righteousness. I need to seek the fullness of what this has for me. What does it actually mean that I now possess the kingdom of God? That I was born into the kingdom, the family of God. What does, that, what does that mean? What does it even look like to seek it? And even as you're reading scripture and praying through the Psalms and pouring over it, that's part of seeking it or prayer, but it's much, much deeper than that. Here is a king, and every king has a kingdom. So if I understand scripture correctly, that once I believe in Christ, he enters me, he's the king, the Holy Spirit, he, he takes up residence in me, all right, which means that now that I am in the kingdom, and the kingdom resides within me, and the king resides within me, that means that wherever I go to my job, neighborhood, sports team, uh, card club, whatever, wherever you go, whatever you do, you are actually bringing the kingdom into that arena. That's what it means. But I, I don't get up every morning and say, oh, I'm getting ready to go shopping, or I'm getting ready to do this, or getting ready to do that, or meet with these people, whatever. I don't normally think, you know, Mike, you are taking the kingdom of God with you. Because the kingdom of God, which we will learn next week even more so, is that it's an upside-down kingdom. And the upside-downness of that kingdom is what draws people to it and makes people wonder about it. But we don't naturally think that way. But this is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Wherever you go, you are taking the kingdom with you. Look at Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. Matthew chapter 5. And I want you to look down, if you would, at verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Here's Jesus. This is still Sermon on the Mount. Listen carefully to what he says. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. And I said last week, salt is a preservative. Therefore, the earth implication is rotting. All right? But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under men. If we really believe that we're the salt, then it really doesn't lose its saltiness. Verse 14, you are the light of the world, meaning the world is in darkness. All right, A city on the hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, 
let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Many people do good deeds that are outside of the kingdom. What is it about our good deeds that make a difference? They're empowered by kingdom living, which we'll look at in a moment when we talk about some other, other statements that, that are made in Scripture. But look at this, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have, come to I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All right? I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus is saying that everything the Old Testament has said has to be accomplished. Verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of these, least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these things will be called great. Verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that term righteousness there, I take to have two different meanings. Both, I think, are, are, are in the text. One is, I cannot enter the kingdom on my own righteousness. I've only said this about, let's see, 45 years. Every single message at the end, I talk about, hey, you must have Christ's righteousness in order to enter in. You can't enter in. So then he compares that. He says, unless your righteousness is greater, is better than that of the really super righteous people, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. They were the ones who in the Gospel of Luke, the uh, Two men go up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. A tax collector was at the bottom of the barrel of just scum. They were the worst of the crowd. And the Pharisee says, I thank God that I'm not like other men are. I'm not an adulterer. I don't lie, cheat, steal, etc. But here's what I do. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything that I possess. What's he doing? He is presenting his righteousness. His self-righteousness, which is what religion does. Look what I've done. I'm sure God will let me in. But the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He admits he's a sinner. He needs God. And God says, that man now has the righteousness that he needs to enter into the kingdom. All right? That's one meaning. But there's another meaning. And the meaning is, once you've entered into the kingdom and you are reading about kingdom life, you will find that the righteousness and the good deeds that you do are not motivated by wanting to get a pat on the back. The money you give, etc., nobody knows. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You do things in secret. Because God in the kingdom will take that and multiply it through his power to bring people to himself. It's a different type of righteousness. It's a righteousness that's motivated out by the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus goes on, he says, you have heard that it's been said, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you've even thought about it, you've committed adultery in your heart. See, he's, he's going much deeper than what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders would do. Well, I've never done that before. Have you done it in here? Then you've done it. You're guilty. All right? And so upside-down living, which again we're going to talk to more about next week, is that kingdom living that brings that forward. I, I really, I don't want to 
past judgment, because I don't know all the facts on this, but how often do you read that a movie star or a famous athlete that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars donates to a cause, and they tell you the amount? This movie star gave $1 million to such and such. And everybody's going, wow. They have $500 million, but they gave a million. My question is, how, how does anybody know that? How do they know what they gave? I don't know. I know if I give something, it isn't published anywhere. Of course, it's not a million dollars, but it's not put out anywhere. It's usually a private matter. And that's the danger of, of, of the self-righteousness of the Pharisee rather than the righteousness of the kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom and its righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Let your light so shine among men, they might see your good works. In Romans chapter 14, it says, The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It just comes out of nowhere in Romans 14. It's talking about a number of different factors, but it, out of nowhere it says, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not what it is. It's not food and clothing. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is that? That's kingdom living. It's the power of the Spirit working through us. Now, I'm just going to read this little portion to you. Um, in the book of Philippians, if you're just kind of taking notes or you want to know where this is, listen carefully to this reading. We came across this the other night in our shepherd group, and I thought this really so well fits. Verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2 says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Work it out, the salvation that you have, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. It's God that is going to do this work. 14, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, the kingdom of darkness, all right? In which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out or forth the word of life in order that I may boast in the day of Christ. He is saying that you should shine like the stars in the universe, let it go out. What is this? This is the light of, the, of kingdom living, which is empowered by the king. Over and over and over again, we see this. Now, I think back to people that I've observed in life where this is not a cliche, uh, where they really, genuinely step out every day and say, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do today, but I know I'm taking the kingdom with me. I don't know how you're going to move in this particular situation, in the office, in this big nasty meeting that's getting ready to come up. I don't know what's going to happen here. All I know is I'm taking the kingdom with me, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm trusting that you will do your thing, all right? In three weeks, I guess it is, uh, several of us go to the Amazon. This is my 16th trip, I think, to the Amazon. And the first time I went, the very first time I went, there were, there were 25, 26 of these pastors, and I had the chance of interviewing some of them and some of my family and interviewing them. 
And we were walking away, we had a little debriefing, and we all agreed, these people are experiencing something that Western Christianity, or the north of them, doesn't seem to be experiencing. I'm certainly not experiencing it. Because I was told in my Western theology that those things don't happen anymore. That all went out in the first century. And I'm not saying that something might not have, but, but they, they believe as they get up every morning, Lord, we have no money, we have no water, we have no food, but we have you. We got the kingdom, and we're moving forward. And the stories they tell press my theology right up against the wall. And I came back going, man, and here's what I've said to them every year since. I always say it. I say it every single time. I stand before them, and now it's up to like 165, 170, and we have two of those conferences. We're going to be going to three and four and five. When I stand up before them, I say this. I know the Bible technically better than you do, but you know Jesus far better than I do. And that's why I go down there. I go down there not to minister to them. <laughs> I want to be ministered to. It goes both ways. Certainly I can help them understand certain theological truths and so on, which I think is, is fine. But when I watch their lives and interview them and hear their stories, I'm thinking, they get up every day. They don't go to the refrigerator and find out whether they, they want to put half and half in their coffee or, or regular milk or, you know. Those choices don't, there is no refrigerator. There's nothing. They go fishing, they go hunting. And the stories and the things, the way they've reached people is just utterly amazing. And then I found, I became very good friends with a, with a man and his wife, gentleman and his wife, uh, a number of years ago. And he, and, and I, I don't like telling stories because I, I'm always a little concerned that people think, well, if I do that, it's like a formula. Uh, testimonies are not formulas. But there is a basic truth to what this guy's life is all about. He found that in his Christian life, it was just sort of flat. It was just, he reads the verses, they sure sound good, nothing happening, and so on. And then eventually he said, if it's really true that I have the kingdom, and that wherever I go, I'm taking the kingdom with me, then I'm going to trust in that. And it started small, and things started happening that had absolutely no human explanation at all. And then it started growing. And then it started touching lives of people all over. And then people in the world agnostics, atheists, Muslims, all kinds of people, would you please come and fix our company? It's a disaster. And we know that you're good at this. But you can only come under these provisions. You cannot mention Jesus, God, the Bible. Just bring in your stuff and help us clean this mess up. And he told me one day, he said, I thought, why would I go to do that? That's just a temporal fix. Why? Eh. But then he said, oh, no, 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 no. Lord, when I enter into that situation, I'm bringing the kingdom. I'll let you do what you're going to do. I don't know how it's going to work since I've got all these restrictions. So he went in, which he's done many, many times, and he started talking to the people about a lot of their problems and why there was conflict. 
using a lot of biblical principles without mentioning the Bible or Jesus, but he's kind of going on. And then he started talking about, you know, a lot of you have trauma in your life. And, and a lot of that has, has caused the situations you're in right now. And he, all he, he just sort of baits the hook a little bit. And then there's a Q&A time. And they say, well, if we've got this trauma, uh, what, do we, what do we do with it? And he says, well, I, I can tell you what I would do with it. But then he looks over at the CEO and says, can I tell him what I would do? Go for it. And then he preaches Jesus. And the people that are on his mailing list that are constantly calling him, I was on the phone the other day, he's got a very wealthy Jewish woman who's now an atheist, and every time they meet, she weeps. She wants what he has. And she keeps talking about Jesus, and she's getting very, very close. And in the next couple of weeks, and I won't tell you where, but he is getting ready to address 400 graphic artists in one of the major corporations of America. And he said, I don't know how I'm going to bring in the gospel or Jesus, but you can be sure I will. It's going to happen. And once he started living that way, he began to realize that God was opening up doors in every single place. And then I have the flashback of when my wife Kay and I came to Reston. My dad gave us a check for 500 bucks. He thought this was the craziest thing he'd ever heard, coming and starting a church. And he says, you don't have a job, you don't have a place to stay, and you don't have any money. So here's 500 bucks. Sayonara. <laughs> we got up here, and there were some people that didn't let us, they told us in advance we could stay in their house for a week or so until I found a job. When I got a job at the country club, they gave me this huge signing bonus. $6,000. Actually, it was the salary for the year. $6,000. Probably equal to about 30000 today. Try to live on that in Northern Virginia, all right? So Kay and I became dependent every single day. How are we going to pay the bills, rent, gas for the car, survive? What are we going to do? We've got nothing. And things happened, and I will just say this lovingly, the things that happened in those days were far greater than anything I see happening today. And Bob Scholl, our youth pastor, often reminds me of what it was like in those days. It isn't that we are less spiritual. It's that there is more of a comfort, and it's in me. I read a short book by Francis Chan. Some of you don't know who he is, but he's a fairly well-known guy in the evangelical world. He had a church that just exploded. Thousands of people coming out, and he said, I can't handle this any longer. I'm done. I'm done. I quit. And then he wrote a book. And it's on the church today. And he, I, I don't remember a thing about the book. There's always usually one thing. And here's what he said. He said, today, we give people, pastors, fat auditoriums, big stages, fat offices, fat salaries, so that they can come out on Sunday morning and tell the people how to live by faith. And I went, oh, my. Just don't come into my office because it's nice, all right? <laughs> it's really nice. And then I flash back to when we had nothing and every day was a dependence. Every day was, Lord, I've got to live in this kingdom because I don't get it. I don't have the power, the strength, the wisdom. And as things developed and grew and got a little bit more comfortable, then I've got to go back and remind myself that every single day has to be 
kingdom living. And I'll just sort of close with this illustration. If you go to buy a car, they're going to check up to see whether you have the money. Even if you're going to borrow from the dealer or just pay cash, they're going to call the bank. And you're sitting there and you're getting ready to buy the car and they make the phone call and get all the information. And they say, well, you certainly don't have any problem buying this car. You've got $10 million in the bank. And you say, I don't have $10 million in the bank. Well, your bank says you have $10 million in it. Oh, huh, there's no way. Question, are you going to believe your account of what's in your account or the bank's account of what's in your account? Let me tell you, the bank spends its time with experts that at the end of the day have to close the books out. Everything has to balance. They know exactly what's in your account. You've probably made some sort of a huge mistake, a really big mistake if you don't know that you've got $10 million. That's what we're dealing with with the kingdom. Do you believe what God says is in your account in the kingdom or what you think is in your account in the kingdom? And my challenge to me first is to start getting up every day and saying, Lord, I'm in the kingdom. And wherever I go, I'm bringing the king and the kingdom. I'm bringing the light and your righteousness into the situation, into the sports team, the sorority, the, the, the job. I, I'm, I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is I'm going to trust that you're going to do something because you're the king. And you have come to seek and to save that which was lost. So the practice is, and somebody grabbed me afterwards and said, here's a good question. What keeps us from kingdom focus? What is it that blocks us from being kingdom focused? And so I just want to encourage you, when you leave here today, just make it a mindset. The job, the neighborhood, the sports team, the whoever, the whatever. That every situation that you enter, as hard as it may be, that you realize when you walk through those doors in a difficult board meeting or whatever, the king is entering in. And his righteousness. And the kingdom. And you don't have to bring tracts and flyers and your Bible and everything else. You just come in. And you ask God to do what he's done for my friend. And watch God work. Now before we leave... The question is, are you in the kingdom? Are you there? Are you there? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most religious people in the world, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You must have Christ's righteousness, not your own. Not your own. And that righteousness comes when you put your faith in Christ by believing that he died, buried, and was rose again and paid the penalty for your sin. It's done. It is finished. When that takes place in your heart, in true, genuine belief, you enter the kingdom with all of its rights and all of its privileges, and it's no longer a cliche. It's a reality. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of opening up these few texts here to talk about your kingdom. And Father, I would pray that not one person would leave here today that does not know you, that wouldn't, uh, that, would, that would not pray that prayer. Uh, that would call upon you, that would believe truly that they need your righteousness to enter in. They would trust in the good news of the gospel. But may all of us leave here with a, a genuine commitment to every day realizing the king and the kingdom 
is with us wherever we go and to trust that you will do what you specialize in doing. And so, Father, thank you for this time. We ask that you would be the one to receive all the glory, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.